The dream that air power would become an independent and decisive force for victory in war began early and died hard. Early innovations in reconnaissance, attack, and air-to-air combat climaxed during the Second World War, when strategic bombing campaigns over Europe and the Pacific devastated cities, but were decisive only in combination with other elements of warfighting. By the end of the Cold War, precision munitions offered a renewal of the dream that casualty-free wars could be fought, at least for the victors. With unmanned aircraft, the militarization of space, and the new significance of competition in the cyber realm, what does the future of air power in war hold? Join us as we talk things through with the man who literally wrote the book on the subject. It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender. Hi, I'm Aaron McLean, and thanks for joining School of War. On today's episode, we're going to talk about air power. We're going to give a, a sort of very short introduction to the concept and its major themes, and who better to lead us through that than Frank Ledwidge, who's the Senior Fellow in Law and Strategy at the Royal Air Force College in Cranwell, England, uh, and the author of Aerial Warfare, The Battle for the Skies, which is published by Oxford University Press and which appears in their very short introduction series. Very grateful to Frank uh, for joining us. And sir, maybe you could start by just telling us a little bit about yourself. You have uh, extensive military experience and maybe tell us as well about how you got interested in this subject matter and, and why you decided to write this book. Well, thanks, Aaron. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's a privilege. Uh, anyhow, so I started my career as a trial lawyer. I did, I did law at Oxford University, and I served or worked, I should say, for about seven years as a trial lawyer. Um, for most of that time, I was in the reserve forces in the Navy, uh, and I transited across from the sort of more maritime approach into the joint environment in the intelligence world. And when the Balkans came up, I got called up, actually I arranged myself to be called up and spent about seven years in the Balkans as a human intelligence officer initially and then as a human rights officer for one of the international organizations. I then got called up in a military role into Iraq, relevantly spent also some time in Helmand in Afghanistan as a justice advisor for the British mission there. I did much the same role, justice and security officer for the British embassy in Libya during the war there in 2011-2012, which, by the way, was uh, I was there on the centenary of the world's first airstrike, which was conducted by Italians on, uh, on Turkish forces there in October 1911. After that, I took a post very happily as a lecturer at the Royal Air Force College, which is in Cranwell in Lincolnshire, essentially teaching aviation history, strategic uh, practice and theory to our cadets there. Now, Cranwell was a little bit different from Colorado Springs. It, the course there is very short. It's, it was then, it was nine months, it's gone down now to six. We needed to condense the history of air power so that the students or cadets could assimilate it pretty quickly. And I thought, well, it'd be a nice idea if we could bring that course together and indeed perhaps a bit more freely discuss things in a book. So I uh, pitched this to OUP and accepted. I should also say I've written a couple of other books about British military failure in Iraq and Afghanistan for Yale, which came before this one. But uh, I, I really took, took an interest in air power, as so many, I guess loads of listeners as well, 
path from from when I was a little boy. You know, I always liked the aircraft and military history and tried to visit relevant places as much as I could and could identify all the Second World War aircraft. I suppose I'm in the generation where I knew a lot of the people who had fought in the Second World War and was very excited to hear their accounts and, and carried that into my adult years, as I guess a lot of us have. So it was such fun to write this book. Uh, well, maybe we can come back around to the question of military failure uh, towards the end of the episode. Uh, you and I are both uh, veterans of Helmand Province. Why don't we start at the start and go back all the way to the First World War? You, you quote in your book, the Commander-in-Chief of Allied Forces, Foch, saying at the outset of the war, quote, aviation may be fine as a sport, but as an instrument of war, it is nothing. So uh, what happened next? Well, that's right. General, as he then wasn't, he became Foch, Marshal Foch, uh, said, uh, c'est rien, uh, air, air power. And Kitchener and various other Allied leaders have been attributed to similar, similar views, Hague and whatnot. We all know of the, the old trope about lions led by donkeys, and there's some truth to that, you know, bull-headed, out-of-date generals and so forth. But very many of them weren't like that. And certainly Foch was one of those. Haig is arguable, although he has his partisans. But it's fair to say that Foch found out very, very, very quickly that air power was absolutely critical. Now, it had replaced cavalry as as the, the key reconnaissance arm, not only for the infantry, but especially as, as the lines solidified on the Western Front into trench warfare, particularly for artillery, where 75% of the casualties were dished out from artillery. But very early in the campaign, the role of air power was absolutely central. There was the Battle of the Marne, famous incident where a French aircraft, which was flown by, I can't remember now his name, it's in the book anyway. Uh, the observer was a sign of a famous watchmaking family, which I'll think of. They observed a gap in the German lines, which French forces were able to exploit. And that saved Paris. I think it's fair to say that that particular observation saved the Western Front, because had Paris fallen, as it was very close to doing, uh, that, that would have put an end to the, to the war in the West. Not to the war in the East, which, of course, was equally brutal and large scale. But in that case, the Germans were under the Eastern Front at roughly the same time. They were under heavy pressure from the Russians. In the Battle of Tannenberg, very similar thing happened. Air power, or in air power in the form of a couple of rickety old aircraft, but essentially involving the reconnaissance role, uh, observed the movements of Russian Russian forces, and General Hindenburg there was able to use the information he received to uh, strike appropriately and win the very famous Battle of Tannenberg, which stabilised the line and continued the war in the east for the Germans. So air power acted against the Germans in that respect in, in the west, but in the east was crucial to preserving their uh, you know, continued role as a, as, a, as a force in being there in north, northeast Poland. So from the very start of the war, senior generals began to realise the potential of air power as a reconnaissance asset. And that solidified as the war went on. And, and once you understand its power for reconnaissance, the thought then must quickly follow, well, gosh, we need to do something about the other guy's ability to reconnoiter us. And so what, what, what comes as a consequence of that? Initially, in 1914, early 1915, you had 
pilots and aircrew taking shots at each other. But it was realized, at least initially by the Germans, that the best gun platform was the aircraft itself. So you're going to see in a lot of First World aircraft, crews of two, you have a pilot and you have a gunner. And the gunner has a, has a machine gun on a swivel. And, and that went on into the Second World War, at least until powered turrets were invented. But it was quickly realized by the Germans, particularly under the guidance of a, a Dutch engineer, Fokker, that the aircraft itself was the best gun platform. And that's where the, the, the fighter came from in the form of the Fokker Eindecker, which in German means uh, monoplane which dominated the skies for the first year. And it had two advantages. First, as a stable gun platform. And secondly, and most importantly, there was something called an interrupter mechanism. Because if you're going to fire, use the aircraft as a gun platform, a propeller aircraft, you have to find a mechanism whereby the guns can shoot through the propellers. Now, there were certain French fighter pilots who, particularly the French, who took the rather risky uh, perspective that what we can do is we can we can fire our gun through the propellers put some armor plate on the propellers to deflect bullets away and hope for the best <laughs> one, of, one of the more famous one famous pilots in fact the most famous pilot who adopted that particular technique with some success actually was roland garros so those of those those listeners who, who follow tennis will know wimbledon and all the other tennis centers in australia us etc and of course, the one in France called Roland Garros, it's named after that particular fighter pilot who managed not to shoot himself down, as many others did with that technique. Anyhow, the Fokker Eindecker had, had the interrupter mechanism and it, it, it cut, cut British and French reconnaissance um, advantage to pieces, really, for the first year or so of the war until they themselves found out the mechanism actually through some pretty good espionage and, and, uh, and technical intelligence and develop their own interrupter mechanisms. And that, that was the fighter. The role of the fighter, of course, is to control the air, or is to challenge for control of the air. Fighters themselves, and that's the case now and then, because one of the messages I want to put through in this book is that the roles of air power, and there are four, there's control of the air, which we're talking about now, there's attack, which we'll come to, there's reconnaissance, which we've already touched on, and then there's mobility. Now, all of these roles, essentially, have remained the same from the early days, 1914, right through today, and will remain the same all, all the way into space, frankly. So you, you talked us through how the reconnaissance function leads to um, the need to achieve air superiority. How does attack come up? How does bombing come about um, in the First World War? Yeah, it was found, it was found pretty early on that uh, the strafing of trenches, which essentially means being attacked by machine guns from above, had limited effect, but the application of explosives from the air could achieve some effect. The key example of that was the bombing of London uh, in 1917 by aircraft. And there have been Zeppelins doing it. The campaign against London and other cities was actually extremely effective. It killed about 700 people and injured hundreds or thousands more, including many children. And the political effect of that bombing of cities was truly strategic in that it prompted the British to develop a system and it's systems again that run through this book so you have the roles and you have air defense systems and indeed attack systems and they came from the attack on on London particularly and the system stopped the attacks it's called the London Air, Air Defense Zone then and the attacks themselves forced the foundation of dedicated 
of a dedicated air force, the Royal Air Force, the world's first dedicated air arm, separate from the other services. So attack that attack role at the strategic level, which you and I might take to mean essentially attacking an enemy's cities or, or key, key assets, that the fundamentals were, were there in the First World War. Uh, I could talk at great length about how successful they were. Aside from that, they weren't really very effective materially, but they were effective in, in, to the extent that the impression they gave is that cities were no longer, particularly in Britain, and very well defended places such as that, were no longer immune from warfare. And of course, that'll um, come to be brutally illustrated with the events of the, the Second World War. But let's, let's talk yeah. a bit about the interwar period um, and about the, the, the prophets, as they are often called, of air power. Um, uh, talk us through the most important of them, the theorists uh, and, and authors of doctrine in that period, what they predicted. Uh, and then we'll talk about what, what actually happens in Spain and then, and then the whole world uh, in the 40s. Yeah. There are three major prophets or seers of, of air warfare, and they looked at the experience of the First World War. The most important of them, I think, remains Duet, who was an Italian general. So we have Duet at first. Duet comes up with two ideas. Now, all of these have been seen in the First World War, but the best way to gain control of the air, to gain command of the air, and he called his book that, Command of the Air in Italian, is to destroy your enemy's air bases. Simple as that. And you can exercise that control of the air then freely. And this is the second idea and uh, make air forces and navy wrong. Armies and navies irrelevant and attack the cities and force your enemy into submission that way through terror. And he advocated the use of firebombing, gas and every weapon that could be brought to bear. Now, inhuman though it was, and Duhay conceded that, he said it's far better than trench warfare or the appalling mayhem that he'd seen on the Italian front, Caporetto and elsewhere, and of course on the Western front. So he said, look, that's the most humane way to conduct warfare, and air power offers us that opportunity. So we gain command of the air, we destroy an enemy's air force, so he can't do the same to us. And then we use our, our command of the air to destroy their uh, population centres. Mitchell, uh, Brigadier General Mitchell, also had two central ideas. The first was that navies are no longer or should no longer be going concerns as massive sinks of investment. Battles, the battleship is finished, and he ex famously demonstrated that by using his aircraft to sink an old German ship that the Americans had got hold of as part of war reparations called the Ostfriesland. And he sunk it with 20 or so aircraft. By the way, the whole thing was, was a setup. Uh, he'd, <laughs> he'd, uh, he'd arranged a particular rules with the admirals, uh, that there'd be one wave of bombing and then they check damage and there'd be another and they check more damage. And what the admirals actually saw was bomb after bomb after bomb fall near this battleship. They weren't allowed to go near it until it sank. <laughs> so they were. They were I, I don't think much has changed about the defense industry and uh, the Pentagon to this day. <laughs> no, they, 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 uh, uh, but, but they, they got their own back on him eventually in 1925. He was, uh, he was cashiered um, for, uh, for insubordination. And the final prophet or seer is a guy called Trenchard. Now, Trenchard is known even today as, well, known any day as the father of, father of the Royal Air Force. His approach, which is like much else of what Trenchard did, was based on some very clever ex post facto rationalisation of things that really didn't happen in the First World War, but he said they did. But his, his idea was that the effect of morale on a pop enemy population 
is 20 times greater than material damage. That's partly uh, convenient reasoning on his part because the damage that the Royal Air Force had dished out to German cities in the First World War was very minimal, but they, 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 the idea was that the morale damage is far greater, which it wasn't, but that was the argument place. Now that played very, very much into the way the Royal Air Force dealt with the second, with, with its bombing campaign in the Second World War, something called morale bombing. So you have these three Cs, one, terror, gain command of the air, destroy enemies air bases, two, that's duet, two, Mitchell, navies are no longer relevant, we can jump over them with air forces, that's a sort of collateral to his main idea, which is we use air power to destroy an enemy's capability to fight, factories, networks and so forth, and trenchard, we attack an enemy's will to fight. In some ways, and I'm curious if you agree with this, it, it seems like um, that period's parallel today is with respect to cyber warfare. Yeah, I think it's a very fair comparison, Aaron. I think I'm just given to think about the way that some uh, cyber attackers are are looking at strategy now. You know, do you, do you, if you attack an enemy, let's say you take out the water supply of the city I live near here in, in England, Oxford, so, or you threaten to do so. Now, what are you attacking there? You're attacking the capability of the population yeah, of course you are. But essentially what you're attacking is that you're, you're creating an atmosphere of fear, playing into, into the way that those people will look at the possibility of conflict. And that goes right back into the idea both of terror bombing from duet and of, um, and of, and of attacking an enemy's will to fight as, as per, per Trenchard. Now, of course, they weren't the first people to come across these ideas. You know, we have a go, Genghis Khan was a great practitioner of terror as a form of warfare right. and the other generals as well. But to apply it to, to new technology, uh, was their innovation. And, and of course, we're, we're at a very early stage in, in cyber and space now. Uh, we're at the same stage in space warfare as we were in air warfare in the 1920s. Yeah. Really, this new thinking is coming out all the time. To take it up to the to the war then, let's talk about um, you know these, these famous figures of the war. You have Bomber Harris leading the British strategic air campaign. You have Curtis LeMay in the 8th Air Force. Talk about how these theorists, and in particular these ideas of you know, terror bombing and, and targeting the will to fight on the one hand and industrial targeting or going after means of production on the other hand influenced the British and American ways of, of war? They were all, Harris, uh, LeMay particularly, were, and Goering and the other uh, German commanders, um, they, were, they were, as most military commanders, are extremely ruthless people, and uh, they had to be. But they weren't inhuman. And they were considered individuals and they were looking at ways of ending the war with minimal cost, especially to their own side. Now, the Bomber Harris is an extremely divisive figure. Arthur, uh, Air Chief Marshal Sir Arthur Harris, a uh, very divisive figure uh, still. But someone who, and he had the, he had the uh, his, his air crews called him Butch, for Butcher, but it was an affectionate nickname. And an ironic one, because he was willing to, to, to take huge casualties for what he did, but they loved him for his for his uncompromising approach. Now, Harris is credited with the idea of this of morale bombing. The reason that the British were forced to firebomb German cities was essentially because that's what they that's the only thing they could do with the kit they had. They tried what the Germans did. In the Battle of Britain, they tried daylight attacks on military targets, only to find that, like the Germans, they were shot out of the sky at a very high rate, an unsustainable rate. 
So they defaulted, like the Germans did, to night bombing, and they did so for three or four years. But what the British did was develop technologies or built technology on top of the technology that already developed and the investment they'd made in their bombing, uh, their bombing force, which began before the war. And they built on that to uh, form a force which was capable in one night, in favourable for them conditions, of annihilating a city through firestorms. The first time they did that was 1943 in, 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 in uh, I think it's 43 in Hamburg, Operation Gomorrah where 40,000 people were killed. It's probably the bloodiest day in Western Europe's history, certainly since the Thirty Years' War. By the way, Albert Speer, Hitler's, Hitler's architect, reported that, uh, in his view, five more of those would have ended the war. And, of course, Harris was quite keen to do as many as he could of those, but never could never achieve the same effect uh, prior to Dresden later in the war. And what, what were the conditions, sorry, just to, just to go into that for a second, what, 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 was, what did he need that he was unable to replicate to, to achieve that? He needed good weather. Good location, Hamburg's easy to find, it's on the coast, and therefore the technologies could, could locate it. So all the bombers found their targets, which they by that time anyway didn't always do. It was a, it had been a dry uh, season. You had a city that at that time was very beautiful. Well, it's not the end of that, but it was, it was a, a Hansa city. It was made essentially of wood, and the uh, British were able to exploit all those conditions to put together... And, and I think there's a fair argument to say it was deliberate, what's called a firestorm, where uh, the, the bombing and the attendant fires created essentially its own weather system, which blew uh, hurricanes of flame and fire through the city where it, 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 essentially no one could survive. And it was achieved again in, um, in Fort time, February 1945, and later that month in Dresden again, and one or two other occasions. And in situations like that, uh, you get tens of thousands and not just thousands of casualties. And that's exactly what happened in Hamburg. The city was essentially destroyed, which is why you go there now and you, you're, you're going to see very, very little of the old Hamburg left. And just to illustrate this, I'll say I was recently in Mainz on the Rhine, which, as you know, was the target of um, any number of raids, both both by the Americans and the Brits. And there was one particularly bloody one I believe in February of 1945, where a couple of thousand people were killed. I, I, I took a tour of their air raid tunnels. It's the old the old city fortress has these you know tunnels that existed were built underground in I think the 18th century as tunnels to be used by sappers to build up besieging for to, to blow up besieging forces from underground. Then they used those tunnels in the 40s to protect the civilian population or at least those members of the civilian population who qualified, according to the Nazi party, to get into the shelters from the bombing. And the, the worst night was, you know, a successful raid from the British point of view, but from the German point of view, what they did was they accidentally let everyone out of the tunnels too early. And so they got caught in the bombing. Actually, what happened every other night was people stayed in the tunnels and there was substantial property damage. For the most part, the, you know, the, the death count was, was much lower than what I think the Brits would have, would have hoped for. And that seems to, to frequently have been the outcome of these raids. Oh, yeah, that's right. If you look at, if you look at the records of Bomber Command, you, you'll see that most raids resulted in four or five hundred deaths and several thousand injuries. But it's a cumulative effect as well, Aaron, you know. And by the way, those, those later war raids, and the most famous of which was Dresden, for which the British get nailed, but by the way, the Americans were heavily involved in it as well. Uh, you get time, you get Mainz, and, and dozens of others, actually, after it was clear that the main purpose of city bombing had completely changed. And now what was happening, that 
this is the really controversial piece. So before D-Day, let's put, I suppose, putting it very simplistically, but before D-Day, Harris had an argument that morale bombing could work. Let's call it morale bombing for want of a better term. Uh, it was separating German industry from its attendant, you know, suppliers. It was shattering their economy to some extent. It was taking up huge numbers of guns, of personnel, of damage control, people's civil defence, which we often forget. By the way, concerning the air campaign, those who oppose it today and say, well, we killed 440,000 uh, Germans for what? And the answer is that 65% of the German fighter force and a similar proportion of uh, artillery tubes were pointed into the sky rather than its Russian or British or American tanks. Right. Uh, plus two million other two million other personnel could be used for other things, in addition to the vast amounts of damage that the, the Germans sustained in both the American and British campaigns. The British bombed at night, the Americans in the day. The Americans, just to, to move on to them, did try their Mitchell theory on the Germans, which was um, to attack the Germans' industrial network. And the trouble was with precision bombing. The trouble was that precision in Arizona didn't translate across to precision in Europe, uh, especially when their formations were being cut to pieces by German fighters. Eventually, they got they got, uh, they got the, the edge on the Germans with the deployment of long-range fighters, namely the P-38s and especially P-51 Mustangs powered by the British Merlin engine. By the end of the war, the point is, or the last year, British and American bombers were ranging over Germany, uninterfered with by German air force. But here's the thing, Aaron, here's one of the other key things that runs through the book, is that, and this goes back to Douet in a sense, you, you can't necessarily get command of the air just by destroying your enemy's air force, because the enemy has a say in the form of ground-based air defence systems. About 50% of British and American bombers were, were shot down by, by flak. But that's to say by guns. And towards the end of the war, percentage was much, much higher because the German Air Force was no longer a going concern. What the American Air Force did in 1944 was essentially destroy the Luftwaffe as a going concern with their long-range fighters and a combination of that and their industrial network theory being applied to the German aero industry, uh, attacking the engine factories, attacking the fuel, especially the fuel, so that the German aircrew didn't have time to train, to replace their pilots, to replace their fighters, to, to challenge the excellent, excellently trained American fighters with unlimited fuel. And, and effectively, over a period of six months or so, the German Luftwaffe was, was utterly destroyed by American air power, a combination of its brilliant fighters and its very well-applied uh, bombing campaign. The British, slightly different, slightly different approach. Fair to say, then, um, that the role of air power in the war um, was vastly significant. Do you, do you think it's the case that the um, the vision of the prophets for its primacy is totally fulfilled, partially fulfilled, not fulfilled at all in the war? I think it's fair to say that this idea of attacking an enemy's will to fight did not work in Germany. There's very little evidence of that. The reports after the war indicated that, if anything, German resolve was strengthened by uh, massive losses of civilians. But I think one thing that was, was vindicated was uh, in the Second World War was Mitchell's ideas uh, of industrial, what's called industrial, well, it was actually the Air Corps Tactical School, which was a, a child, essentially, of Mitchell, in, uh, still, still exists, actually, in, um, in Maxwell Air Base, in another form. But their ideas, which they developed through the 30s, the bomber mafia, as they were called, of 
destroying an enemy's ability to fight through attacking key nodes in principle worked. And uh, we, we, we see that amply evidenced in the later part of the war, particularly in the campaign called Operation Point Blank, which was just before D-Day, where the idea was to separate the German forces in northern France from any supplies or fuel coming their way uh, or reinforcements uh, from the south of France and Germany itself, which worked brilliantly. And that was contingent, of course, upon annihilating the air force and allowing them to range much more freely than they otherwise could have done. So I think Mitchell was vindicated. We'll come to Douai when we come on to the Arab-Israeli wars, where we see his ideas really coming to the fore, particularly of, of gaining command of the air. Trenchard, less so. But it's also worth, you know, it's, it's also worth saying this. We talk about these prophets, and air power theorists talk about this a, perhaps a little too much. Harris, at a meeting, in the, uh, which I, I actually heard the, or read the transcript, this is in the 70s, he was asked, did, did you take any account of uh, Duet in your planning of the bombing campaign? And he said, never heard of him, never had any. <laughs> Didn't need to. Just to, to take us through the Cold War for, for a second, I, I have successfully indoctrinated my three-year-old uh, into being an enormous Chuck Yeager fan. And uh, of course, he recently passed away. And one of my favorite sayings of, of Yeager, who was full of them, um, was that the first time I saw a jet, I shot it down. After the war, we had these enormously significant technological developments. What are the big trends of the Cold War as far as the development of air power is concerned? The first uh, thing that comes to mind, of course, is development of the jet, which makes things a lot, a, a, a lot quicker and actually far more efficient. And, you know, we see that for, first of all in the, uh, in the in the Korean War, it's not a forgotten war, but certainly it's air power element and the length that the 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 long shadow of of what it what it did has been forgotten. Um, the US essentially destroyed North Korea as, a, as, a, as an advanced state insofar as it was, and it certainly as advanced as South Korea at the time, and killed somewhere far north of a million people. And that legacy subsists today. There are perennials in, in, in air warfare, which, which essentially center around the, the roles and the relative supremacy of, of roles. You know, got, you go through periods where attack is the key element. So you have that in Vietnam. You go through periods where control of the air and the prevention of attack is, 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 is in vogue. And then you get that in the 70s and the 80s, I'd suggest. And now we're into, uh, I think, I think we're, we're into a period where ISTAR, intelligence mm. surveillance, target acquisition and reconnaissance, that's, that's the key role where perhaps much of the moment, if not most resources go. Uh, if you're absolutely F-35, of course. Um, so you get these ebbs and flows of, of, of roles and emphases, and that, that, those are often based on personality. So in the US, you have the bomber mafia, which subsisted in the form of Curtis LeMay's strategic air command into the 60s. You then had the sort of fighter boys then sort of didn't quite dominate in the 70s uh, and so on. And today, today, I think we've got a far more nuanced air power leadership. But um, yeah, so that, that's all I'd say to that. There's, there's one moment, um, a post-Cold War moment, I'd like to zoom in on before we, we talk about the present day a bit more. Um, and that's Kosovo in 1999. This was a, this was a moment where, in, in certain respects, just to, not, not to beat the dead horse, but to go back to the prophets, in, in certain respects, it seemed as though air power had finally fulfilled its promise um, of achieving decisive strategic results 
you know, against a significant adversary, not a negligible adversary, not, you know, terrorists in the desert or something like that, but an actual state with state objectives. Uh, does that does that does that hold up as a judgment in retrospect? In retrospect, it was a confused campaign. Because the initial phase of it involved the attempt to locate and destroy Serbian ground forces who were, who were at the time conducting a campaign of ethnic cleansing. And it's very difficult to strike effectively small groups of people who are murdering civilians, and, 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 and they, they were not struck effectively. So then focus moved to infrastructure and then to the capital uh, with some <laughs> mixed success, especially when the Chinese embassy managed to get bombed by mistake. It was a genuine mistake. It was a, quite, a, quite, a, quite a major error. Yeah. And it was only when, when, when Belgrade was attacked that the Serbian leadership, which was really the key element here, felt threatened enough to, to, go, to the, go to the table. Um, Milosevic did not care about how many thousands or hundreds of Serb soldiers were killed. In fact, the more the better from his perspective. But it's when his personal interests being affected politically and there was a chance that, you know, that, that other interests might decide to take an interest in his continuing as a leader. It was only when that happened that, um, that um, Milosevic went, went to the, as I say, went to the negotiating table and went to the Russians actually to, to affect that. So it was a confused campaign. But I'd say it has a very, very, it has, it has a huge legacy. You know, the Balkan campaign and to, I think, a lesser extent, the Iraqi, various Iraq wars, and that's this, that Russia and China saw that there was little point in taking on the West in the air. They were just going to get shot down. Their kit wasn't good enough. Their doctrine wasn't good enough. Their training was nothing like uh, NATO or American standards, as far as you can draw a distinction. So they thought, well, how can we offset that? And, and the result we have now is that both Russia and China have adopted strategies very firmly based around Absolutely superb air defence systems, ground-based air defence systems. And by the way, you had a, something similar happened in the late 60s, early 70s in Egypt, where the Egyptian Air Force was destroyed on the ground, as per Douai, 1967. And Egyptians and Russians got together and, 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 and thought, well, look, we can't take on the Israelis in the air, so let's take them on from the ground. And they did so very effectively with ground-based air defence systems, which eventually the Israelis found a way around that in the 80s. And so we're going to have to find a way around the Russian and Chinese offset of what we call anti-axis area denial, which is a child, I think, of the Balkan campaigns. It's a bastard child of the Balkan campaigns, and to a lesser extent, Iraq. And indeed, the only damage that the Serbs did to the into NATO, they, they shot down two uh, US aircraft, including a stealth fighter, from the ground using very innovative ground, ground-based air defense systems, extremely well-trained people. Other point I would make just about what you just said, you know, it's, it's something just someone recently pointed out to me that the bomb, the mistaken bombing of the Chinese embassy in 1999 lives on in Chinese culture and thought in a way um, that is um, way out of proportion to the extent that it lives on really? in the United States. Yeah, yeah, in the United States, we sort of moved past it. Um, we apologized. Um, but I think most importantly, th there's no you know reasonable American who thinks that we did it on purpose, right? It was sort of an idea that's dismissed out of hand. It was an obvious mistake, a terrible mistake, a mistake that shouldn't have happened, um, but a mistake. And that is not apparently the case um, in Chinese 
sort of discussion of the incident to this day, and it has a significant role in their thinking and in popular attitudes towards the United States, that this couldn't possibly have been accidental, given the power of American air power, given, given its precision, given our intelligence capabilities. There's just no way. Now, the fact that it doesn't seem to make any strategic sense doesn't appear to matter very much. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Perceptions. I, mean, when, when, when I think I was in Helmand probably before you, so this was in, I was there seven, eight. I remember being told then that uh, the common perception amongst Helmandis was that the, the British were deliberately failing to uh, deliver on their promises to provide development and construction and all that lovely stuff as revenge for the Battle of Maiwand, which took place in 1880. Uh, <laughs> the Afghans defeated right. roundly, straight up defeated us. But the perception was that... Um, that our failure to deliver on our promises was, was absolutely deliberate. The, the, the re- rationale was, well, look, we see all these helicopters flying around, all these troops in their body armor, all this expensive kit, and everybody cruising around in big cars and tanks and, what, and armored vehicles and what have you. And people like that can't possibly be unable to build a few schools for us or some roads like the Russians did. Uh, therefore, it must be deliberate. Well, that speaks to the the in some ways to our our theme. I was there in nine and ten, and you know it's it's fair to say that we were tactically very successful. Anytime there was a fight, and air power played some role in that. Operationally, we did fine, though there there there's a case to be made that in certain respects we were we were frequently stalemated. And then strategically, I mean, it, in the long run of of the war, there's no way to argue it was a success. It was it was a it was a dramatic failure in the end. And, you know, five times the amount of air power capability couldn't have changed that, it, it seems to me. I'm curious to know your, 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 your take on, on air power in modern warfare, um, especially the kind we've been fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq. Well, I, I mean, you're right about, uh, about the relevance of, of air power, of course, the predominant, well, there were two, two roles there, weren't there? It was the I-Star role and the mobility role. Uh, same, same for all, all counterinsurgency campaigns, both I-Star and mobility are predominant, and that goes right back into you know to the early days of the twenties. Same thing: reconnaissance, mobility. I mean, you know, I, I come back to this business of air dominance. You know, I mean, I, I'm not. I mean, obviously, it's the case that the, the Taliban or the Asli Taliban or whichever group it was that they were fighting, whatever given time, were afraid of air power, but it never offset the strategic advantage they had of a coherent narrative, uh, incapable though they were of realistically challenging that air power. Same applies, of course, in Vietnam or in any insurgency you, you care, to, care to, to take into account. Of course, in Vietnam, the Viet Cong could challenge. And they shot down thousands of American aircraft, one kind or another, from the ground. But it, that speaks to me to, the, to, to Clausewitz, ultimately. You know, if you have a political narrative, a strategic narrative that's coherent and generally accepted, then you're likely to prevail over your opponent who does not. However many helicopters and F-15s or tornadoes he's got. You mentioned space warfare earlier in our conversation. Is it, as a, as a, a kind of warfare, a natural extension of aerial warfare? Does the same sort of logic apply in a kind of linear fashion? Or are there new considerations and enti- considerations that are different in kind when it comes to space? This is a huge debate now, and, and, and theorists of space, I teach space power for the, for the Air Force, and, and theories of space power, theorists of space power now tend to look at things more from a naval angle, 
So they look at space control uh, as an anal- analogy to, to sea control, to the, um, to the, uh, the wide oceans of low orbit, low orbit space. But I think when you get out into cis-lunar space, and indeed lunar space, which we will be getting to far quicker, I think, than most people think, and that's where uh, air power analogies, I, I think, start to strike again, because you have to defend um, mobile assets in, um, in dynamic space, huge, vast, three-dimensional spaces. You have the idea, I think, which currently isn't very present in space power enthusiasts of mobility. We're beginning to see Space Force look at that now, but only beginning as SpaceX starts to operationalize its Starship, which I think will be a massive step change in, in space capabilities, which NASA are not ready for, nor Space Force yet, as far as I know. Um, so I think I think there are analogies to both sea power and air power, but in fairness to the space people, I think they have their own domain and they can learn from both, uh, and indeed Clausewitz and Sun Tzu and others, but they, they're going to have to develop their own ideas. Um, I mean, just, just because of the, you know, the unforgiving volume of space. Frank Ludwidge, author of Aerial Warfare, we've covered um, a great deal of, uh, of ground or, or space. Um, and uh, uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. I'm really very, very grateful to you. And maybe we can have you back sometime to go into more detail on any of the you know, dozens of topics that we've covered that probably merit their own episodes. Oh, it's been great. Thank you very much for the opportunity. This is a Nebulous Media production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.